Good morning, church. I am especially thankful to be here on this Lord's Day with you all and to bring the word this morning, especially because it is also a new week. I am very tired after this last week. We had two birthdays, one anniversary, one broken arm, and three fevers. So, and uh, this will be the third time I'm teaching this in that week span as well, too. So I'm hoping that this week I'll be able to sleep and breathe a little bit. It'll be a very good thing. Um, the ushers are going to come forward. They have a, an outline that um, they could pass out to you if you would like to have an outline, something that will help you to be able to follow along. If um, you lose your place, you can look at the outline to see where we are at in the sermon and the text. Bibles and pencils are also available as well. And I don't know that it's going to happen, but I, there might be uh, people from the fellowship hall coming in. We had some difficulties with the live feed for that. I don't know if that's resolved totally or not. So just be aware if a big crowd comes in, please try to make some room for them. But to begin, I wanted this morning to have us think about the 17th century Baptist Puritan pastor John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress and many other books as well that we should be familiar with and read. The man who spent over a decade in jail for refusing to not preach the gospel. He once said this. He said, The heart that is fullest of good works has in it the least room for Satan's temptations. The heart that is fullest of good works has in it the least room for Satan's temptations. You see, Bunyan understood the nature of good works in regard to the Christian life at a very practical level. He took seriously the exhortations and the commands of Christ to pursue holiness and godliness. And not because such things save you, but because Christ's atoning death, which propitiated the wrath of God and paid the penalty that our sins deserved, and because the righteousness of Christ being accredited to you through the faith that God supplies to us, has already saved you and justified you. Christians... Those people who have been born again or born from above or born from God, Scripture speaks of regeneration all three of those ways. Christians are to live specific lives precisely because we have been saved. And that's not a burden to do so. Christians most of the time will delight in to, to live in a way that honors God because of God's great love for them. Not that it will be done perfectly or anything like that. Not that the flesh and carnal desires will be totally absent. They won't be. But that's no excuse to not pursue godliness. In fact, repentance is even part of that pursuit. And the pursuit of good works, as Pastor John Bunyan noted, plays a very important role in the life of the Christian. And this isn't something that we should be lackadaisical in. So that's what the Apostle Peter will be addressing in the text that we have before us this morning. And he's giving uh, to his hearers and to us the Christian's pattern for godliness. Okay, the, the Christian's pattern for godliness. So let's read our passage, and we'll ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. If not, you can simply hear the word read. That is an, a wonderful thing to be able to do, to hear the word read. So we'll be reading beginning at verse 5 in 2 Peter chapter 1. The word of the Lord. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray briefly and ask him to bless our time in his word. Great and glorious God, we praise you and thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would give to us clear understanding, that we would not confuse categories, and that we would honor you in the way that we receive your word as it is preached today. May I only speak what is true and right, and that which edifies and which exalts Christ. And may those who, are, who listen, listen well, Lord. For we know that we even need your help in both of those things, in speaking and in listening. We depend upon you always, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, remember our context here that we're dealing with in 2 Peter. Peter is writing in light of a very serious problem that was occurring among some of the churches that he had ministered to and that he had influence in. 
there was a danger that he saw coming that was based upon his understanding of depravity, upon the, the wickedness of humanity, as well as what took place within the Old Covenant. And that there would be people among them whose profession of faith was not genuine and they would apostatize. And they would bring in these destructive heresies into the church that would lead others away. And so just for that's the context of what he's saying. And so just for a moment, consider the state of the church in our culture today. The evangelical church, the Protestant church in the West. How many today are, are willing to stand for righteousness? How many today are willing to not compromise with the culture? How many today are there that profess to be Christian and yet affirm heresy and rarely even attend a worship service? Peter's warning, his admonitions against apostasy were absolutely needed then and even now as well. What he warns of here in chapter 2, we see playing out through this age but spanning between Christ's first and second coming, which includes our present day, of course, where it seems like, at least in our society, in our, our culture, we are on an accelerated race towards apostasy. If you've seen those two uh, most recent Ligonier statements on the, on the church over the last four years, there are these two statements that Ligonier, that ministry that R.C. Sprawl founded, which they take a survey of doctrinal beliefs among professing Christians. If you've seen those last two, which they come out every other year, in the last four years, I, it's, it's a bleak landscape of what the professing church is and what they believe and what they confess. Or if you're active on social media platforms, or if you engage people on the streets over your faith, then you would know that the things that Peter is writing about here are something that we should pay close attention to. And of course, I realize you know, it's the Word of God, and that alone demands that we pay close attention to it. But generally speaking, our culture and society seem to be racing away from Christian values and commitments at a faster pace than I have observed in my nearly 20 years as a Christian. The last three to four years seem different. And there are bright spots, of course. I'm not saying it's all bleak. I mean, the overturning of Roe recently, there are still people being born again and who are united to Christ in that. But generally speaking, we should be all the more, we should all be all the more aware and guarded against apostasy right now. And Peter's first aim in helping us to do this is to remind us who we are in Christ. He wants us to have our eyes put upon the Savior who we are in Jesus. He reminds us of what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower, one who is a disciple of Jesus, who was first loved by him, and so they love him back. And the order in which he does this is important. It's important that we grasp this so that we don't become the very people that Peter warns about in chapter 2. And so to be especially clear, notice the careful way he frames what he's saying here in verse 1. Verse 1, he's, he's writing to people who have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. It's not something that all people at all places have. It's a saving faith. It's the same faith that the apostles had that is obtained by them. Why? Well, notice the end of verse 1 by the righteousness of God, our, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the Christian's faith, which is a true saving faith, is the work of God in us. Notice what the Apostle John says in John 6, 28 to 29. You could, just, you could turn there or you could just have me read this. I will have us turn there later on this morning. But verse 28, we read, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. So, belief in Christ, which is a necessary element of faith in Christ, which also includes knowledge and confidence of that belief, is a work of God, according to Jesus. That's how the Christian obtains it, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And remember this passage from John, which concerns doing the works of God when we begin considering five, verses 5 to 7 in just a moment here. And we especially need to understand verses 5 and 7 in light of verses 3 and 4. Like I mentioned last time, there is this mini-sermon that is being given at the, at, in the start of 2 Peter in verses 3 through 11. And it has to do with godliness. It has to do with holiness. Last time, we considered the power for godliness, which is in verses 3 and 4. 
And the Christian has a need for divine power, that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. And so what Yahweh does in saving us is that he causes us to be born again, and he regenerates us all by himself, and this unites us to Christ so that we have a saving union with Jesus Christ. And that is what Peter means when he speaks about Christians being partakers of the divine nature, that we've been born again and Christ is united to us and that which is true of Christ is true of us, not because it's actually infused to us, but because of Christ's righteousness being accredited to us by the declaration and promise of God. And so, through the knowledge he imparts to us, based on the precious and great promises which accompany our salvation, we have and we read here in 2 Peter, all that we need for life and godliness. All that we need. Verses 3 through 4 establish those things. The Christian, the person who is united to Christ, because of that union with Christ, has all they need for life and godliness. And because of that, we can even escape corruption in the world, verse 4 tells us. And so having first established that we play no role in our regeneration, that God is the sole actor in it, that God is monergistically sovereign in salvation, God saves us apart from any effort of our own. It's a monergistic work. After establishing that, that power for godliness, Peter now turns his attention to the pattern for godliness in verses 5 through 7. And he'll be very specific about the purpose for godliness in verses 8 to 11. We can't confuse that order, though, that the power for godliness is necessary for considering this pattern of godliness. Because if we were to take this pattern that Peter lists here in 5 through 7, and then if you sought to employ it in your own strength, in your own power, if you're not drawing from the infinite source that is Christ Jesus, then this list is going to become a burden. Apart from Christ, the power given to us and through his gospel, if we're seeking to keep this list in our strength, then we would be heaping coals of condemnation upon our heads if we tried to do that without the power that Christ first gives us through the regenerating work that he causes in us in saving us. The type of people who do that, the people who seek to be moral by their own effort and without a steadfast reliance upon Christ born out of their salvation, they are the kind of professing believers who I would think that Jesus is referring to at the end of the Sermon on the Mount or near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You know where he says there that there will be people who on the day of visitation who say to him, Lord, Lord, and that they did all these good works in his name. But then remember what he will say to them? He will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why would, why would the Lord Jesus say that to people who have a testimony of good works done in his name? Well, it must be because they were all done out of a pretense of their own strength and not the power that Christ instills in us when he saves us. It's, it's, it's people who are doing good works in Jesus' name who haven't first been saved by Yahweh, by Father, Son, and Spirit. Being that many of you here this morning are Christians, and that means that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. Now, do you ever wonder as to why over the past 2,000 years people aren't just flocking to Christ by the masses? I mean, we know how great it is to be loved by Christ and to love Christ. Uh, he offers us reconciliation with God, the complete forgiveness of sins, and eternal life as a free gift to all who will, who will believe. I mean, what could be better? Of course, you know, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and that is possible only through Christ. And yet, so many would rather live for, many, for any other purpose. Why aren't people lined up at the door of the church saying, what must I do to be saved? Or why, generally, generally speaking, are shallow and superficial churches where the sermons are nothing more than therapy and moral advice sprinkled with a few Bible verses here and there, why are they, where they are focused on the concern of the world watching them, why, generally speaking, are those congregations bursting at the seams, but faithful churches that seek to proclaim the whole counsel of God, who avoid syncretism with the world, why are they often much smaller? 
And make no mistake, you know, a small church that is preaching the whole counsel of God is doing much more for the kingdom and for the world than a mega church that has all but abandoned the gospel. And the size of a the size of a congregation doesn't guarantee good or bad, of course. I'm just making generalizations. But the answer is 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or 1 Corinthians 2:4. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Or to use another biblical analogy, before God imparted new life to us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. If you've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not because of your brilliance. It's not because you're better or more observant than, you're, than someone else. You were dead in your sins, just like everyone else. So it was, it was because, principally, that God was mercifully kind to you, and he opened your blind eyes so that you may see, as we read in Acts 16, 14. The point is, you cannot begin to grow as a Christian until you have received new life from God through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I know that sounds rather obvious, but it's shocking how many people seem to just skip that step and go right to trying to be moral and to having a place with Christ apart from depending upon Christ for all things. It is the life of Christ in you that gives you the desire and the power to pursue the pattern mentioned in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. The moment that you're trusting in Christ, God graciously gives you the key to the unfathomable, unfathomable riches in Christ Jesus, which supplies you with everything that you need for life and godliness. But it would be a mistake to think that you're totally passive in that. You're not totally passive in growing in godliness. Remember back to the passage that I mentioned earlier from John 6? You can look back there now if you have your Bible and just keep your finger in 2 Peter. John 6 is that famous chapter in, in John's telling of the gospel. It's a wonderful chapter. Remember what's happening at this point uh, around verse 28 and 29. People were seeking Jesus. They were flocking to him by the masses because he had performed a great miracle. And they asked him at that point, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus essentially preaches the gospel to them. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's in verse 28 to 29. And in doing so, in saying it like that, what he's doing is he's taking the causative effect of, off of them. And he points them to God, to look to God for belief, because it's something that God works. It's not something they can do on their own. But notice verse 27. Look at what is said in verse 27. So right before the passage I've already been talking about. Verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So the scenario that our Lord is setting up, mind you, he knows the hearts of this people. They're only seeking him because they, are, they ate their fill of bread. And so he sets up two kinds of work. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, work for that food, that food that endures to eternal life. But notice, that food is that which the Son of Man will give to you. So if we're thinking of it in the same categories as 2 Peter, what Jesus is saying is that our role in working is a role that is dependent upon a power that Christ himself will produce in us. There's no room for us to glory in ourselves or to boast at all. Our only boast is in Christ Jesus and his cross. Puritan commentator Matthew Poole says, That food which endures to everlasting life, under which notion also unquestionably comes whatsoever is necessary by God's revealed will, that we may have in us the hopes of glory here and may enter into actual possession of that glory hereafter. And pay special attention to this. This is the food that we're to work for. Such as are, first, the knowledge of the gospel, then the believing of it, and the acceptance of that Savior in the way of salvation, which God has revealed in it for lost sinners, and 
that holiness of life which God has made necessary to it. So this then is very consistent with what Peter is saying here in our text. That when Christ changes us, our responsibility becomes clear. As Puritan Walter Marshall put it in his classic on the Christian life, we must first receive the comforts of the gospel in order, to, in order that we may be able to perform sincerely the duties of the law. Let's be clear here. 2 Peter 5-7, through it's law. That it's law. He's telling us this is what we should do. It's not gospel, but of course it's still very good. We aren't thinking of it in light of it justifying us, but having already been justified. And so to remind us, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. You see, we're, we're not to be passive as Christians. Just letting life go by, letting whatever happens, happen. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. In other words, because of the reality that Christ has already saved you, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort, every effort to have a faith that looks a certain way. So you may think at this point, but... You know, but pastor, I thought that faith was the work of God in us. And that is true. That is what we have seen here in 2 Peter and John 6. But when God gives us that faith, it is as a gift to us, we are then to act in it. And it becomes truly ours, yet it's still reliant upon the grace of God. Now you could think of it like this. Once God has granted you faith and repentance unto life, that faith that he gives you is the vehicle by which he sanctifies you. That vehicle that he gives you by which he imparts graces unto you so that you may do the good works that he intends for you to do. Now, we often remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is an important passage for us. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is clear enough. Grace, salvation, faith, none of it is our own doing. It's all God's gift to us. But do we remember what verse 10 says? Because verse 10 addresses what we are to do with that grace, salvation, and faith. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't get to define what it means to be godly. And if you look at the world today, they will tell you all kinds of things contrary to what God's pattern for godliness is. And if you listen to some of these churches or individual professing Christians and what they use as a litmus, litmus test for godliness, it's really no wonder as to why the church is in such trouble today. You know, back when cities were burning, over the BLM riots and the death of George Floyd. You were supposed to show your virtue by blacking out your social media picture for some period of length. Or, you know, with the overturning of Roe, uh, if you were to be godly, then you shouldn't celebrate too much, these types of people tell us. And this one really bugged me. And there are even churches in our very county that I know of who are guilty here. But that during COVID lockdowns, they were saying that in order to love your neighbor, you have to wear a mask and stay home. Even, even well past a year into this, when everyone it was very obvious that there was something fishy going on, they were still saying that. And one church in D.C., Washington, D.C., was even telling the congregation to stay home, but then also at the same time encouraging them to attend BLM marches. But again, it makes sense because these are the kinds of churches and Christians that are concerned with a watching world. And so they signal in such a way. And they use those things as their definition of godliness and holiness and what the church should be doing, rather than looking to what God's Word says about these matters. Because they ultimately, they want to win the world's approval. Seemingly, they're not all that concerned with the fact that God is watching. And the testimony that we are to have to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we do that by proclaiming the gospel, by declaring the gospel, and then by pursuing godliness according to what God's word says. 
not some made-up standards by churches and individual Christians, and certainly not with what the world thinks. So Peter gives us a pattern for godliness, and this is not definitive. So much of God's word is devoted to this, but it's certainly a good start. And so what do we need to know about the pattern for godliness? Well, three things. Number one, been talking about this already, but the pattern requires effort. You see this right at the beginning in verse 5, make every effort. It's the consistent witness of the New Testament that growth in godliness is accompanied by an ex exertion on the part of the Christian. There's a few verses, okay? Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the armor of God so we may stand fast and resist the devil, Ephesians 6.12. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Luke 13.24, strive to enter into the, through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and they will not be able. All of this language, all effort, work, exertion, fight. The, the Christian life is sometimes a fight. I, I don't have to tell you that. If you've been a Christian for some time, you know the battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop in the Anglican Church 150 years ago or so, he wrote many volumes, but perhaps he's most well-known for his book entitled Holiness. In that book... He said that the child of God has two great marks about him. And we might be inclined to think, well, faith and love, or perhaps joy and peace. And those, of course, are important. But that's not what Ryle was thinking at this, at this point. He said, the Christian is known, one, for his inner warfare, and number two, for his inner peace. I think that's good. The child of God is known for having a peace that surpasses understanding. And yet, at the same time, an inner warfare, a constant fight, a determined vigilance against sin. And I suspect you know this to be true. Nevertheless, I'm going to tell you anyway. But if you know the Lord, I suspect you know that this is the truth. That if you're not making effort with this inner fight, you're not drifting toward godliness, are you? If you're not making effort in this inward fight, where do we drift? We drift towards wickedness. If we aren't making a conscious effort to keep the law, we tend to drift towards wickedness. Now, all this talk of work and exhortation or exertion, as good Protestants, we should get nervous. You know, work, we should have our guards up. I would have you too even. But being careful, remember, this does not mean that works save us. The way Peter is speaking about exertion here and making effort, he's not speaking of it like that. No, no, God saves us by faith alone. And this does not mean that God saves us by faith alone and then he just leaves us to ourselves to go do the things that he expects us to do. That's not it either. Again, that's why verses 3 and 4 are important. We have a divine power at work within us. That's why verse 5 begins for this very reason. So this is only because there is divine power at work in us that he can tell us to make every effort. God's not telling us to make every effort apart from that divine work in us already. What he's telling us before that divine work has happened in us, he's telling us to repent from our sins and to trust Christ. And so please understand this. God is doing the work. Even as we are making every effort, God is still doing the work because it is only by grace that we are making an effort. Listen, none of us, if we consider the pattern in 2 Peter 5, 1, 5 through 7, and if we were making some success in supplementing to our faith the listed seven areas, none of us would boast in ourselves, right? None of us would then turn the attention to us and say, look how great I am. To do so would be contrary to the list even. None of us would say, I hope, I'm so great I have loads of self-control. Or, or this knowledge that I have is purely because I'm so stinking smart. We, we wouldn't say those things if we were truly possessing those things. Instead, we would boast in Christ's grace in our life. We'd be humble about it. 
because it is God who is working in us for them to be accomplished. And I don't want to say too much about that because certainly we're going to teach and touch it on verses 8 through 11. But the effort we make to supplement our faith is because God is working in us. Hebrews 2.11 For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So there we see that Jesus, who is God, is the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, Christians, in other words, those who have union with Christ, they all have one source, referring to Christ's atoning work, which, which includes not only his death for us, but his righteous life for us. That's the source. It's not us. Philippians 2.12-13 to Work out your salvation, and this is the, the latter half of 2.12, but he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good purpose. So we work out, but God first works in. From the work that God is doing in us, we work out. And I have more to say to this, but I'm going to save that for verse 10 and 11, especially when the next time we get to Second Peter. But for now, I want us to be clear here. The notion of making effort, which is found in many, many, many places in the New Testament, is not to be thought of in like this narrow sense of justification. That's what it's not. He's not causing us to think of that. And neither is this to be thought of in light of causing our sanctification as well. And I'll have something to say about that soon, but we'll also be saving the bulk of that for the next sermon. So what we should think of in light of this then is the, the broad scope of your whole Christian life. You work out this whole thing, what it means to be a Christian. You put forth effort, and as you do that, it is God that is working through you. The all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. But as the power flows in us, we must make every effort to work out that power and to not depend upon ourselves then. We make the effort for God's glory, and so that we will be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, that's verse 8, so next sermon. I didn't want this to be a two-hour sermon. I didn't want any Eutychus type of moments to happen here. Have David or Moki fall out the sound booth. Oh, you know, actually, now that I think about that, if you would like to serve in the sound booth, you can do that. We, 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 we can use some extra help and people ministering to the church by serving through the sound booth as well. And I promise um, it's very hard to fall out of that window up there. So you wouldn't have to worry. <laughs> so let me try to make this point about God working in us. Uh, preceding our effort. Pre preceding the exertion that we're supposed to make from the Exodus account. You might remember this from our evening service as we were covering the law of God. If you're not coming to the evening service, you should come. It's a good time. Honestly, it gives you more opportunities to supplement your faith. But think of the early chapters of Exodus. And most people here know this story. So think of the Exodus from Egypt. And here, I'm going to give a wrong way to think about the Exodus account. I'm going to start with the wrong way. So imagine, God tells the Israelites, I want you to obey the Ten Commandments. And when you get that down for a few years, well, then I will set you free from Egypt. That's not how it happened. That would be to confuse obedience with justification or law with gospel. Or another wrong way to look at Exodus. What if God said, I hear your cries for help, and so I will save you of my own strong hand. I will set you free, and then you could go live whatever way you like. Well, that's justification and redemption without effort or obedience that follows it. And that's not what happened either. As you know, God first redeemed the people freely by his own sovereign grace, and then, therefore, he expects obedience. And we see that even in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Before the giving of the law, there's a reminder about the redemption that he made um, in there in Exodus chapter 20. And so if we think forward to the New Covenant, it's also the same as a continuity. Redemption is the ground from which our obedience grows. As I was saying to the men yesterday at our fellowship lunch, um, all of creation owes God obedience because he is the creator. But the redeemed have more reasons, don't they? All of creation owes God obedience. But those who have been redeemed have more reasons. And so we need to remember that for the Christian, grace always precedes demand. You get that little sentence, I hope. It will save you a lot of trouble in your Christian life if you remember that. People sometimes put demand before grace and when that happens, you don't have grace any longer. 
if people have grace and then there's no demand, well, then you don't have Christianity. Grace precedes demand. Justification springs forth into desire and effort because those things are the natural response to our being justified. So the point that there is a command clearly in Scripture that you must progress in growth and godliness, and this pattern this, that shows the progress requires effort. It's not passive. It's not let go and let God. Or here I am, I surrender all. Christ just takes over and it happens. No, the biblical language is clear. You strive. You fight. You beat your body. You run a good race. You be a good soldier. You be a hard-working farmer because you reap what you sow. If you've ever met a godly person, and I have because I'm, I'm looking at some of them right now, not perfect people, but godly people nonetheless, I guarantee you it's because that person, by the grace of God, has worked hard. They have, by grace, made effort. Not as hard as they could have. I'm sure that they would say that. But I guarantee you that they have spent many hours in His Word, have developed some sort of faithful routine when it comes to a prayer life. They have been faithful in church attendance. They have been faithful in attending to the means of grace, which we'll be talking about at our evening services over the next coming weeks. Come and learn more about that. You, you do not grow in godliness without some effort. Now, it takes more than effort. We need the power of God at work within us, God's power to justify us and sanctify us, and that leads us to making every effort to supplement to our faith. So we make every effort. Second point. These will go through much quicker. The pattern we're talking about, the pattern for godliness. Number one, it requires effort. Number two, the pattern is rooted in faith, and it culminates in love. The Apostle Peter says, supplement your faith. Okay, so start with faith. All right, you believe Christianity, that's good. Now, we know if you truly have it, you didn't actually get it from your parents or something like that. You didn't actually get it from whoever shared the gospel with you. You didn't get it from your church, though all of those things often play a role, and others as well. But you got it. Maybe it was a month ago, maybe it was 50 years ago, but you got it. That's wonderful. You believe something, and you love Jesus Christ. Grow great. But contrary to popular belief, that's not it. You're not done. Because if you truly have faith, it's because God has worked it in you, as we've already said. Yet, sometimes professing Christians seem to just stop there. We run into this type of person a lot doing uh, street evangelism out in front of the clinic on Fridays. And is there anything sadder than meeting someone who is saying that they've been a Christian for years and decades. We're not quite sure, so we give them the benefit of the doubt that they are truly regenerate, but it seems like there's never been any progress. They went down the aisle, or they raised their hand, or they asked Jesus into their heart, and that's it. Maybe they attended church for a few years, but now it's just never really. Well, this text will not allow for that. Peter says here to these Christians, certainly some of them would be new believers even, and he says, look, you're part of a church. You've been converted. You believe. You've accepted this message about Jesus. Praise the Lord. But God didn't call you because of your virtue. He's now calling you to virtue. So let me tell you what to do next. You add to your faith virtue. You see, there's no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. I've met people before who were non-practicing Jews because Jewish can also be an ethnic category, but that's much different. Christians aren't categorically an ethnic group. We're made up of people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's why all this critical race theory stuff is so damaging. It's creating ethnic lines, whereas Christ abolishes those divisions. But a, a non-practicing Christian, a non-practicing evangelical, there's no such thing. You're just not a Christian if that's the case. Christians are practicing Christians. And it starts with faith. That's the gift from God. This is a list that starts with faith and ends with love. And it's not just saying, here's how you get better than others. No, it's saying, this is how you conform to your Savior. And so it starts with faith because it's rooted in this understanding of the gospel. And so you live this way, not actually to make God happy, but because you already trust that He is happy. And you know why, right? 
Because when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why he's pleased. And so you live this way, not simply to imitate Christ. That's part of it. But you live this way because you have the power of Christ. You have everything that you need for life and godliness. So you start with faith, and then here's the pattern he wants you to grow in. First, and this isn't a chronological order, by the way. It's not like you need to knock these off in an order before you can move to the second one. Or you need to master them before you can proceed, because if that was the case, then you would just never proceed. But there are many similar lists in Scripture as well. Uh, we read Galatians 5 in the call to worship this morning, and there's some overlap between these two lists even. But the first thing mentioned here is virtue. That is, in other words, moral excellence. It is goodness. The apostle is exhorting us to escape the corruptions of the world, which he knows Christians actually have the power to do, not in themselves, but through their mediator who lives to make intercession for them. And how do we know what's good? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. God has given to us his word. Thankfully, we don't have to look to nature to know what is good because our fallenness would disrupt what we know is true and right. So thankfully, and praise God, he's given to us his word that we may know what is good. And so the next thing that is listed is that we're to grow in knowledge. Supplement your virtue with knowledge. So you're learning. Every Christian is learning at some pace or another. It's not the same pace for everyone, but there's progress. Many Christians are very sincere and still very confused. That's part of God's will. It's not the end of the world when that's the case. Because we're, we are not saved by our knowledge and lack of confusion. We are saved by Christ. And so Christians are learning over time. So are you growing? Are you growing in discernment? I hope, and even though this is painful, I hope you can look back at moments in your Christian life from four, five, ten, or thirty years ago and think, like, man, I was dumb. I, I shouldn't have been doing that thing or thinking like that. I know that's discouraging because I can look back and I think that about myself. You know, what was I thinking? I know I was a Christian, but how could I have been so foolish in my decisions? Or how could I not see that? Uh, it is the old adage, if not but for the grace of God, there I would have gone. Well, it's good when you could do that actually because you're growing. But if you look back in time and you don't find a single choice that was less than wise, well, that's not a good sign. You always have something in the past that looks kind of embarrassing, I would think, at least doctrinally, it means you're growing. What we should also be noticing about these virtues or categories is that they're all contrary to what would describe the false teachers in chapter 2. And we'll get there eventually. But this category... This next virtue or next section stands out especially in light of that. They, these false teachers, they were lacking self-control. And we are to add to self, we're to add self-control to knowledge. And these false teachers, they were characterized by sensuality, too, too. They were inflamed by sinful desires, motivated by sinful desires, chapter 2, verse 10. But just think of all the ways in which we should model self-control even now in spending, in eating, in drinking, in sex, in emotions, even in the use of our time. And this is certainly difficult because the self must contend with sin. But remember, the Lord has given to us all that we need. We're partakers of the divine nature. Next would be steadfastness or perseverance. This refers to the ability to endure hardship and distress. Thayer, Anthony Thayer, defines it as the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. And in the Bible, the word steadfastness is often used in light of suffering for Christ. And so it means that we keep following Christ even when it results in persecution or hardship. We're not like those other soils that Pastor Nick mentioned last Sunday evening where the hardships or things like come up and the faith is squenched and it's because it was never actually really there. And then to steadfastness, we are to add godliness. Now, this isn't to say that all that we have been talking about isn't also godliness. It is. But Peter here is thinking about our overall conduct before a fallen world. That the world, when they speak of us as evildoers, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's 1 Peter 2.12. Godliness here is about living an ordinary Christian life devoted to God, 
Oh, you go to church on Sundays and your whole neighborhood is at home or going to sports or doing whatever it is they do. But you're at church. You, you seek to be holy. You seek to be different in the world. That's all that's meant there by godliness. And then to godliness, we're to add brotherly affection. Tertullian, early church father, reported in the third century that the pagans remarked, see how they love one another. They, the, the culture around the early church in Tertullian's day, they were in awe over the way the Christians lived together and how they prioritized each other over the world. And then he goes on to say this, and I love this. He says, We are one in mind and soul. We do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us but our wives. <laughs> well, I would hope so. But that tells you something about the culture they lived in, right? That's good. All things are common among us, but our wives or our husbands, right? Those are not. Everything else, our griefs, our sorrows, our joys, our requests, our earthly goods, we share it all, but just husband and wives, those are out of bounds. Everything else we share. And lastly, the chain climaxes with love. That's the final goal. To add love means that we would be better neighbors, that we would show more concern that we'd have more interest for others, especially for those without a voice to defend themselves. Love, the widow and the orphan. Love is the virtue that sums up all the other virtues according to Colossians 3.14. It is the most excellent way according to 1 Corinthians 13. And so that's the pattern for godliness given to us by Peter. It flows out of God's power working in us. That comes first, and then for that very reason, we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with the things on that list. And by the way, this list also makes a really good prayer list. Maybe uh, sometimes you find yourself not knowing how to pray for people. Or maybe sometimes you find yourself not even knowing how to pray for yourself. Well, go through this list. It's a good accountability list. Ask the Lord to grow you in these areas. Ask the Lord to sanctify you further so that you may pursue these, these things. Self-examination, whether you're young or whether you're old, you know, the point is to see, are you growing? And we can all grow in these areas. So number one, the pattern requires effort. Number two, the pattern is rooted in love and it culminates in, in excuse me, rooted in faith and it culminates in love. And lastly, number three, the pattern isn't the cause of sanctification, but it's the result of it. I'm only hoping to pique your interests here because my plan is to consider the purpose of godliness with the next section in verses 8 through 11 uh, in Peter's introduction. But it's common for modern Christianity to think that the way we live sanctifies us. And if that's the case, well then, the purpose of the pattern would be our sanctification. But as you can see from my third point, I don't hold that to be the case. I would think that this belief that godly living contributes to our sanctification actually stems from this Quaker, a teaching of this Quaker, who was influenced by Roman Catholic mysticism, a man named Richard Foster. And he has an infamous book. I, I don't recommend him to you. You won't see his book in the bookstall that we're going to have available soon. Um, he wrote a book called Spiritual Formation. On, on spiritual formation, in which he taught that there were certain things that we could do to increase our spirituality, effectively then sanctifying ourselves. But in doing this, Foster ends up stealing glory from God. Because just as it is true that God justifies us, God is also the actor in sanctifying us. And we live out of that sanctification, increasing in good works for God's glory. We saw that in Hebrews 2.11 and Philippians 2.12-13, which we read earlier. And so, what is sanctification exactly then? Lots of definitions have been given over the years. We probably all understand that it's very closely related to justification. But Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley in their Reformed Systematic Theology define sanctification like this. They say sanctification is the work of God by which he makes people holy. It's the work of God by which he makes people holy. Even as Christians then, brothers and sisters, we don't have the ability to make ourselves holy. That is a gracious gift from the Lord that he grants to us through the faith, remember the vehicle that he supplies to us. Sanctification is absolutely an important and necessary doctrine for our salvation. And that's why it's a good thing that it's not dependent upon us to sanctify ourselves. 
because we never want to frame our mouths so as to speak in such a way that hinges our salvation upon what we do or what we don't do. In fact, we live out of the sanctification that God works in us. His power to justify us is that which also progressively sanctifies us. And there have been many good theological words on sanctification. William Ames said, Sanctification is the real change in man from the sordidness of sin to the purity of God's image. He explained that just as justification frees us from the guilt of sin, then sanctification frees us from the stain of sin. And it causes us to be restored to the purity of the image of God. I'm going to say this man's name, last name wrong for sure. Johannes Wolibius. He wrote that sanctification is the free act of God by which the faithful who are engrafted into Christ through faith and justified through the Holy Spirit are progressively set free from their innate sinfulness and restored to His image that they may be made fit to glorify Him by good works. It's good as well. The Baptist Catechism gives a really good definition. Also, this is on your outline too. It asks the question, what is sanctification? And the answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace. The work of God's free grace. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And so all of that, brothers and sisters, so that we might be sure in our minds of what we owe to our Lord God. We owe Him everything. We owe Him everything. As we have gone over in this passage in 2 Peter this morning, and Peter has exhorted us with the law, the law which is good, we need to be reminded that these exhortations don't save us. But we are to make the effort to implement them for the very reason that we have been saved. And it is precisely God's power which also then sanctifies us so that we can live unto righteousness, as the Baptist Catechism says. And so I ask you, friends, would the list that Peter gives us, the pattern for godliness that he gives us, would you feel comfortable describing that as living unto righteousness? Supplementing your faith with virtue and, and knowledge and steadfastness all the way to love? It's certainly not unrighteousness, right? That's certainly righteousness. And so, beloved in the Lord, I would desire for you this morning to be encouraged that the God who is calling you to this pattern of godliness is not waiting for you to do these things that you can make yourself godly. No, He is the one who is giving to us all that we need for a life of godliness. He's even promising to sanctify us so that we, for His glory's sake, may take this pattern and make effort to supplement the faith that He has given us, all for His glory and for our joy as well. And so we'll touch on more on that next time. But for now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the redemptive work that you have made for us, the salvation, uh, the free gift of salvation that has been given to us in the covenant of grace. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand our role after being saved, how it is that we are to live in a way that honors and glorifies you, not because we think that it saves us, not because we think that it makes us more holy, but because we understand that you have saved us and you are working in us to make us holy. And so we desire to live in such a way that would be a great testimony to your power at work in us, Lord, and for the joy and good of our fellow brethren and sisters. And so may you be exalted, Lord, and may you impress upon us a greater love for you, for all that you continue to do for us. We always need you, Lord God, and we're so glad that you are perfectly able and capable. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.